Okay, and today we have Greg Paul. Thank you so much for joining me. Uh, no problem. So can you start off by giving your background, like what it is you do, what you study? I work, one of the things I work on are dinosaurs, of course, and other prehistoric uh, animals. Started doing this um, pretty seriously a long time ago, back in the 70s. Uh, particularly in the 1980s, I started uh, studying informally at Johns Hopkins under Robert Bacher, who was the guy who, more than anybody else, um, initiated the um, dinosaur renaissance of interest in dinosaurs and indicating that they were had high metabolic rates and uh, birds were descendants of dinosaurs and a lot of dinosaurs are feathered. Not all these ideas were entirely his, but he, he was a big leader, proponent of it. And... Um, so I've been working on dinosaurs ever since then. Um, been publishing in the peer-reviewed literature. I never did get a degree, but I have been publishing in the frontline literature uh, since then. Also, illustrate dinosaurs a lot. And um, one of my main claims to fame is that um, I was the the basic design work for the Tyrannosaurus in Jurassic Park. Um, um, Mike Tersick took those plans and did the full-size sculpture and stuff like that. And um, other thing I just learned is, is that if you go into the um, American Museum of Natural History in New York, there's a spectacular display of a, a giant barosaur sauropod rearing up and uh, confronting an allosaurus. I just learned that a painting I did back in the late 70s was the inspiration for that, which is pretty cool. And done a, lot, a fair amount of work on dinosaurs in various aspects, and um, this is my latest paper is indicating that Tyrannosaurus was multiple species. Yeah, so that's the first thing I kind of wanted to, to chat with you about. So I did a little bit of background research on this. Uh, like I told you earlier, I was a D student in high school, so I'm going to ask a lot of dumb questions today. But um, basically what my understanding of it is, is that, so Tyrannosaurus rex is like a genus, just like a big cat would be like, uh, I don't know, like lions and tigers and all of that. They're in the same genus, but they're different species is that correct you didn't get it quite right okay tyrannosaurus is the genus okay tyrannosaurus rex is this rex is the species within that genus gotcha so okay. for example we're in the genus homo right and we're the species sapiens neanderthals are homo neanderthalus and then an er earlier version of homo was homo erectus so tyrannosaurus is just the genus and that's what people should be saying all the time. I'm going to ask you a question. Do you know the type species of Brontosaurus? I do not. Nobody does except for, you know, paleontologists. It's Brontosaurus excelsus, and nobody ever says Brontosaurus excelsus. Same for Triceratops. The, tri the type species is Triceratops horridus. Um, people don't generally talk about that. And so people actually should only be saying Tyrannosaurus in the first place. All the other dinosaurs we named them just by their genus name. Of course, one of the reasons people say Tyrannosaurus is Tyrannosaurus rex is because it sounds way cool. But um, it's still not proper to do, even if they're, even though there's just the one species, because nobody does that for other dinosaurs. Interesting. Okay, so I've already learned something. So, how many different species are there uh, of Tyrannosaurus? Yes, of Tyrannosaurus. Our hypothesis is that there are three. And, and you, have, you, you still have your Tyrannosaurus rex, but now you also have Tyrannosaurus um, regina and Tyrannosaurus imperator, and that's the tyrant lizard king, tyrant lizard queen, 
in Tyrant Lizard Emperor. And what are the differences between the three? Um, they're not a whole lot. And that's not surprising. Um, you know, a lot of the species, when I say that, we, it's not a whole lot. We're talking about the skeleton. That's all we have. We don't know what they look like. But, for example, if you take the skeleton of the, the big cats are, all, are in Panthera, the genus, and uh, the, the, the tiger, Panthera tigris, and the lion, Panthera leo, um, if you look at the skeletons, the skeletal skeletons, are, they're pretty hard to tell apart. You have to know what you're doing. And it's not a whole lot that's, that's distinguished from them. But then if you see the living animals, you know, you can easily tell which one is about to eat you um, because of the color patterns and the other fur patterns. But um, so with Tyrannosaurus species, what we have is we now have a sufficient sample size, number of specimens, that, um, want, that some of them are what we're calling robust because a lot of the bones are built pretty strongly. And others are called, we're calling graciles because their bones are more lightly built. There are a number of elements that do this in the skull and the skeleton. The most prominent is the femur, the thigh bone. And in the robust, it's, 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 it's a statter bone. And you can sometimes just looking at the femur, you can tell it. You can tell it's somewhat statter. It's not a huge difference, but it's, it's there and statistically significant. And there's also a difference in the teeth at the front of the lower jaw. In a bunch of these specimens, um, there's two small teeth at the front. Um, we call it sizerform teeth. And in a, another about half a specimen of skulls, the, the teeth are, there's only one of these teeth. Now, this is all kind of unusual because it turns out that robust is actually normal for the Tyrannosaurids, which is the family Tyrannosaurus is in. And two teeth, small teeth at the front of the lower jaw, is the norm for the family, the earlier ones. And the first Tyrannosaurus is like that. They're all robust. And almost all of them just have the, um, the almost all of them have two uh, small teeth. Those are the lower ones, and we're calling those Tyrannosaurus and Periator. And then higher up, you still have robust, but you also suddenly get these graciles, which are very unusual. They're, they're you know, significantly more slender, boned, and all of them up, up high also have um, just one tooth up front. So that there's a change there. So up the Tyrannosaurus rex is are the robust up front because the type specimen of Tyrannosaurus rex is a robust. And uh, they have the one small tooth. Then the graciles are a different species called, we're calling Tyrannosaurus regina. They're gracile and they also have just the one tooth. So those are your three species and that's what's distinguishing them. As a follow-up, where did, did they evolve basically into different species were they living in different climates like what what is the main difference between them and their environments because I, I assume there has to be some kind of difference in where they lived no there isn't um these are all what we call the tt zone these are what we call lancian um formations these are from the very end of the dinosaur era and they're all in what's called the, the end of the cretaceous period the late cretaceous but the very latest cretaceous and the, time period called the Maastrichtian uh, substage in the latest part of that the period which they existed over is uh, around one and a half million years is a bit iffy but something like that and they're found in um, the Great Plains states to the east of the Rockies straddling the Canadian U.S. border You're Alberta Saskatchewan Montana the western Dakotas uh, Wyoming and Colorado so they're all living in the same area pretty much 
and the separation in time is modest in that you have imperiator down lower and older, which doesn't seem to have overlapped much of, at all with Regina and Rex that were later. So the, in the habitat, this was back when the continent was reuniting, getting back together again. Because prior to this, the interior seaway, where you find your Tyrannodon and a lot of your mosasaurs and stuff like that, had cut the continent in, in two, from the Arctic Ocean down to the Gulf of Mexico. And so it's coastal area. But the seaway was regressing, and the continent had started reuniting at the center. And that's where these dinosaurs are found, near that place where the reunification is occurring. And it was you know, fairly subtropical, kind of like Florida. Um, and the summertime really hot. The wintertime would get kind of cool on occasion, maybe every once in a while had a mild snowfalls. But um, it's a coastal wet habitat. Interesting. So um, one of the things that I kind and of... heavily forested, too. That's another thing. Some of the classic dinosaur habitats, like where you find the, the Morrison Formation, where you find the, the brontosaurs and diplodocids and stegosaurs and allosaurs, that was actually very seasonally dry and a kind of savanna-like. But the, this area of habitat was much wetter and more heavily forested. Interesting. Okay. Um, the, in the first uh, Tyrannosaurus, it was found in the eastern Rocky Mountains. Is that correct? To the east of the Rocky Mountains. Okay. Um, the Rocky Mountains existed back then. They were not as the, – the base of the Rockies back then was at sea level. And they probably weren't as tall as they are now, but they're the ancestral rock is the same basic ranges, apparently. And they were shedding sediments to the east. They were eroding, and the sediments were going into and helping fill the seaway. And so it's coastal sediments. That's where you find these dinosaurs buried. That's how they got, that's how they got preserved. So was it, uh, like, when they, were they just roaming around whenever the, uh, the meteor hit? And, like, this is where they ended up from those, those coastal kind of areas you were talking about? Um, yeah, the, the, the asteroid hit in, in Mexico in the Yucatan Peninsula. And, uh, but that was you know, quite far to the south. I don't know how much they would have noticed about it initially because, um, you know, that was pretty far to the south. Um, I don't know if they would have seen the light from it. It might have depended on if it was day or night. I think they may have actually kind of pinned down what time of day it was, but I'm, I could be wrong about that. But, um... So if at nighttime, they probably would have seen a flash from the south. In the daytime, maybe not noticeable. And then uh, tsunamis would have come up the interior seaway, but I don't know if it's kind of hard to reconstruct exactly where the coastline was relative to these dinosaurs. So I don't know if they would have been affected by the tsunamis. And then the, the, they may have felt earthquakes, which would have been not terrible, but noticeable. And then the debris from the asteroid went up in a giant plume and went around the Earth. As it came back down, it re-entered the atmosphere and produced a really nasty heating effect that would kill you. So and if, it, if they weren't storming, if you had heavy clouds and storm overhead, they wouldn't have noticed that much. But if it was relatively clear skies, that would have killed them right there. Because it got so hot? Is that why? Yeah. If it was a glowing sky, it would have been, you would have, you know, we humans might survive by going, retreating somewhere into the shade or something like that or getting away from it. It also may have started wildfires and also some of the debris raining. Well, I don't know about that. But um, it, it may have started wildfires around around a lot of the planet. It seems to have done that. So the paper that you just released that we are discussing, there was some controversy 
surrounding it. That's how I heard about it. I saw a video of someone talking about this on TikTok, and that's when I reached mm-hmm. out to you. So what has been the backlash for releasing this paper? Well, we, my authors, we're not too pleased with this. I mean, we knew it was going to be controversial, um, but not necessarily for good reasons. Um, partly it's because Tyrannosaurus is so iconic. It's kind of a mixed thing about that, because even a lot of the people saying, well, we don't like this paper, we're agreeing that it's not a ridiculous idea that there would be multiple species. And we know that the other dinosaurs living at the same time are undergoing speciation like this. Classic Darwinian speciation, you know, origin of the species. And um, we have good evidence for that. But still, we, we had a, one thing is a lot of these people apparently didn't read the paper carefully. It was kind of natural, you know, you get the call from the reporter, we need to have deadline on this, can you look at this, and that sort of thing. But the paper was quite extensive, and they clearly didn't read it all. But um, one of the basic problems with the speciation thing is that it was occurring elsewhere, so we know that. And it is an iconic species. This is causing a problem. But they also misread the paper. They started saying, for example, that we only have two characters. And they went on and on about this, that we use to distinguish the species. Now, what we pointed out in the back part of the paper was, in fact, this is done all the time. That, in fact, some species that in recent work has been distinguished by only one character. Because if you have very closely related species, they are barely distinguishable. Hello, that's the way that works. And that's what we're talking about here. Very close related species. Um, the other problem is simply that we actually use seven characters. It's quite clear in the paper. You look at the figures, the data. There's even a statement we had at the beginning, just before the uh, we did what we call the diagnosis, saying there's more than two characters here. So this was actually pretty bad that they did this. We're supposed to be scientists. You're supposed to read the paper and then comment on what it actually says, not what, what people think. And another problem was a fellow named Thomas Carr, who seems to be very dedicated to uh, there being just one species, um, wrote a paper a couple of years ago that we barely pay attention to because it's not even about the species problem of Tyrannosaurus. And he's doing other things. And he even says in his paper he assumes that there's only one species. And all of a sudden this became the paper that already proved there's only one species. When he actually only uh, – we have lots of – to go back a bit, we were talking earlier about how – the early species is Tyrannosaurus imperator. Then the next ones are Rex and Regina living at the same time. How do we know that? Because there are about three dozen specimens that can now be correlated stratigraphically. And we're the very first people to do that. Nobody ever had done that before. And in Carr's paper, he only has seven specimens correlated with, with stratigraphy. And also, we use the femur as a primary bone. We have almost two dozen species we correlate stratigraphically. He only has three. His paper is literally useless for determining species. It doesn't even get come close. So there are all these mythologies that build up about the paper very quickly, and that was really inappropriate. That should not have happened. So the, the, the controversy is exaggerated. I suspect over time this, this idea is going to become more acceptable as the people look at the data. Well, it just goes to show you in today's day and age, uh, everything gets challenged. Like, there, there's no way around it. You could say that the, uh, the sky is blue and someone will say, no, it's more of a red color. You know, things used to be so different. In 1968, Robert Bacher published in, in a very obscure magazine called, I think, Discover or Discovery. It was a Yale publication. He was an undergrad there, where he, for the first time in modern paleontology, there's a sentence where he says that dinosaurs 
probably had the kind of metabolic rates of mammals and birds. Nobody knew about this for a few years. <laughs> That's how different it was. There was virtually nothing about it. The first time I read about this sort of thing was in 72, and when Time Life used to sell these books by mail, and I got it, and there was this Robert Bacher guy who I hadn't heard about this in 72, talking about dinosaurs might be more different from mammals and birds than, than I, the people have been talking about, because I've been raised that dinosaurs are reptiles, they're slow and sluggish, low metabolic rates, all that stuff. And it's, even then doesn't talk about them being warm-blooded. And it took a while for it to filter out. You know, these days, if something like that happened, it's immediate. But back then, things just moved so... I didn't know... I don't know if you know who he looks like, but Robert Barker looks kind of like Rasputin. He has that kind of hair and beard. Oh, okay, I got you. And for years, since he was out of Yale and Harvard, I thought he was a button-down guy with a suit and tie and all that. And in 1977, the very first dinosaur documentary... The first dinosaur documentary ever done was in 1977, on Nova on PBS. It had never been done before. And he was on it. You know, we were all eager. Oh, we're going to see these people. We we're shocking to see what his appearance was. And you know, I'd known about him being around since, uh, I guess, for five years. And that was the first time I saw him. So that's how slow things were back in those old days. Yeah, I mean, with the, I think the, the power of the Internet is a great thing. Don't get me wrong. But there's another side to it, too. I think this instant reaction thing is uh, is not made for our human psyche speaking of evolution we haven't caught up yet to what our technology is well it's also causing big problems um it used to be that discovery communications and A&E who does the history channel and all they do good straightforward documentaries now they're going into pseudoscience in a big way and it used to be when people asked me about dinosaurs you know, people would learn I do dinosaurs, you know, out of a social situation. They'd start asking me some basic questions are, why did they go extinct? And did they, were they warm-blooded or birds, dinosaurs, and, and why? Now they're starting to ask me, and they kind of do this, you know, looking back and forth and then looking at me like I'm going to give them the truth. And they'll start asking, is it true that aliens killed off the dinosaurs? Because that's what some of these, you know, the ancient alien stuff is now talking about. Oh, yeah. So that's, that's how this, um, in the social media, that's how this contaminating things. Why do you think that's happening? Is it just so they can get viewers, or what is it exactly? Oh, that's money. Absolutely. They started the reality TV around the turn of the century with people like, you know, with guys out in the middle of the ocean uh, catching fish and swearing all the time they bleep out or making motorbike, motorbikes. So that's where they realized the money was. And instead of doing straightforward hour-long documentaries, out of like how National Geographic does. And uh, so they become corrupted. And uh, the only places that you can get good documentaries these days, reliable ones, you know, Discovery and and uh, Andy do do good documentaries. But the only place that that don't do the pseudoscience are National Geographic and uh, Smithsonian and, and PBS. Yeah, because now I think even like the History Channel, they have a TV show. It's like a fictionalized TV show about Vikings. Yeah. So it's a lot of that now. I do think that eventually. Well, one way I look at it is, yes, this is happening, but it's almost like people are just trying to to fill their time. You know what I mean? So they're they're willing to just stare at whatever on on the TV for hours on end. Yeah. Well, that was true when we were, I was young. I grew up on television, spent a lot of time watching television, even though there's only three main channels back then. And you had to go up to the television and turn the knob when you wanted to change channels. Yeah, so I'm a child of the 90s. I was born in 91. 
So now it's it's funny today because uh, kids they don't even like commercials. They might not even know what commercials are now because there's Netflix, yeah. Hulu, all that good stuff. Yeah. So uh, was dinosaurs something that you were always interested in from the time that you were yep. a kid? Yep. Yeah, my mom saved a lot of the drawings I did. My dad happened to work for a paper company that put out high quality paper. And he always took credit for my being an, becoming artistic because he went back these uh, pads full of paper and I would uh, draw something and then talk, put it aside and draw something again. And my mom saved a lot of those. And of course, dinosaurs were a big uh, feature among that. Yeah, um, I, I think every little boy, th- there's just something inherently almost in us that we're drawn to, or little kids in general, but we're drawn to dinosaurs. Well, of course. I mean, why wouldn't? we be i mean it's just these bizarre almost alien things that were you know in a way alien populations and uh these very strange uh really cool things that with you know some of them these ridiculously long necks and little heads at the ends and long whip tails and elephant like bodies and then these gigantic predators that are dwarf lions and tigers and bears um you know the big theropods and stegosaurs and uh stuff like that and now the therizinosaurs those really had the head of the, the freddy cougar type uh saber claws on their hands you know just like out of a movie so yeah it's uh, unavoidable it well, one of the unfortunate things is that most people grow out of it because dinosaurs became kind of nerdy even in science uh, way back they stopped being a really serious object of uh, science so they went extinct they were just reptiles they don't really mean much the main subject became mammals and fish and that sort of thing and the dinosaurs were, were kind of put to the side so it became kind of a, a kid stuff to get the people coming to the museum. You want the dinosaurs, but otherwise the paleontologists weren't working on them that much, which is why there was a lot of uh, bad science done. We should have known going much further back that they were birds were their descendants and, and so on. There were some major mistakes made. So, yeah, things are that, – that's – and, um, you know, just adults do miss lose the interest in them, and it's too bad, but that's uh, the way it is. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. I mean, it, it, got, it, it piqued my interest again once I started kind of digging around. I was like, this is no one's talking about this. And I and correct me if I'm wrong here. I mean, I feel like this is also important too to to understand like our planet and the climate, because really, like you were saying, dinosaurs are like an alien species that were on Earth. Yep. Yeah, there's a lot of um, important, uh, you really need to look at the work of what the um, fluctuations in carbon dioxide did over time. The Mesozoic was uh, generally very hot hot because of the carbon dioxide levels were were so high. And um, that wouldn't want to be the the kind of planet we'd want to live in, for one thing. That would uh, flood the oceans. Uh, That would melt the Antarctic ice sheet in the Greenland. That would, I think, add something like 300 feet to the ocean level. This would not be good. Um, you flood virtually of the mo- most of the cities on the planet. So, um, yeah, we need to really study this in order to get a better idea of where our planet's been and where it's going. Because even more important when you look at, at recent uh, climatology within the recent periods and uh, for the, the similar reasons to get a real idea of what's going down. You know, a lot, you know some of the people who don't um, go for climate change is because they reject deep time in geology and paleoclimatology. They think the Earth was created just recently. Now all this stuff is a bunch of hooey, and um, therefore don't pay any attention to it. Oh, like so creationism? 
Oh, yeah, that's definitely going on. Um, that a fair, a fair number of, Ameri of Americans are creationists of some sort or other who don't pay attention to what the scientists say because the scientists are saying that the Earth is ancient and evolution is true. What do these people know? Well, again, it's... And this is also a problem for dinosaur paleontology because a fair number of ranchers, of course, a lot of the land you find these dinosaurs on is ranch land. Well, some of the ranchers will allow the paleontologists on. They're, to them, they're evolutionists, and they, they should be stay off their land. They will allow creationists to come on and dig up dinosaurs, but not the scientists. Yeah, that, that is something that's, that's bizarre to me when there's... 100% proof like how do they think the dinosaur bones got there you know what I mean like how did they think did someone plant them there did the devil plant them there I've never understood that, that is a line some creationists say that is not the line of the official creationist organizations their line is dinosaurs were abundant on the planet prior to the flood they were put on the ark and they got off the ark and that dragons hunted by St. George were dinosaurs this is literally what they say. It's in their books. So there you go. Yeah, I, I don't get it. I don't understand it. Um, what kind of dinosaurs were living in the ocean? Like, how big were they? Were they gigantic? There weren't any dinosaurs living in the oceans. Was there any kind of, like, creatures that were in the time of dinosaurs that were living in the oceans? Well, at the end of the year, you can get my Princeton Field Guide to, to Mesozoic Sea Reptiles, <clears throat> which is a good time to mention that I also have the Princeton Field Guide to Dinosaurs in second edition, which has been out for a while. You can get that. And also the Princeton uh, Field Guide to Pterosaurs, the flying, sometimes called the flying reptiles, are going to be out in a couple, in a couple of months. So anyway, um, dinosaurs never went marine in a big way for reasons that are not well understood. Um, the only dinosaurs that were semi-aquatic or what are called spinosaurs, which spinosaurus has become one of the big stars of Jurassic Park. Because it was huge, and bigger than Tyrannosaurus, but um, not a whole lot bigger, but somewhat bigger. Uh, these have kind of crocodile heads and heavy bones that indicate they were in the water a lot. There's now some saying that they actually hunted underwater. I doubt that for various reasons. But uh, anyway, but they never went marine, and we don't quite know why. But what happened was a bunch of reptiles, what we call reptiles, did go marine. Some of them were... Um, some of the early ones are these kind of vague families, the kind of lizard-like animals, but they're not lizards and kind of boring, actually. Um, but you also have the ichthyosaurs, whose relationships are poorly understood. These are all called diapsid reptiles. All the reptiles alive today, most of the reptiles alive today, they're lizards and, and turtles and so on, are apparently diapsids. It's a big, 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 big group. And crocodiles are not. Crocodiles are... Archosaurs, which are the group that dinosaurs and birds are in, and pterosaurs. But the, the, there are a bunch of diapsids that, for some reason, went marine repeatedly. One of the famous groups are the ichthyosaurs, which are the ones that really look a lot like fish and dolphins, have that dolphin and fish-like body shape. And um, another group of the plesiosaurs, which tended to evolve moderately or very, very long necks. And if they had short necks, big skulls, or long necks, really small heads, you know, like elasmosaurus and so on. And then um, there's some giant sea turtles, some which were bigger in the Mesozoic than they are today, particularly the Lake Cretaceous. And you have the Mosasaurs, which are literally giant aquatic lizards. Uh, they were within the, the lizard group, and they got rid of the hands and feet for, for flippers and that sort of thing. But they otherwise look like big seagoing lizards. So you have a bunch of these groups doing that. 
And what's interesting, though, I'm going to publish on this, is recently there have been claims that ichthyosaurs got as big as fin whales and stuff like that. And they're trying to explain because they did it very rapidly at the beginning of the Mesozoic. They went gigantic. There's been all these official-sounding papers doing this. Well, I'm the best person on the planet for estimating massive extinct animals because I do these skeletal, high-resolution uh, skeletal drawings and top and side views and such. And none of those things got over 20 tons. They're actually none of them were, were terribly big. And they're overestimating the mass of these things by, by a factor of four. So um, they got big, a lot of them, but not super gigantic. They never matched the size of the big whales or the really big fish, including Megalodon, the giant shark. So but they're very interesting animals, really cool, very diverse. And they lived throughout the Mesozoic. And then, except for the turtles, um, got killed off by the, uh, the, the asteroid impact. Interesting. Yeah. It, like I said, I'm a D student. So if I'm asking any dumb questions today, I apologize. Well, that's how we learn. Yes, absolutely. It definitely is. Um, so how did you get involved with Jurassic Park? Oh, that's, well, Michael Crichton used my first book, Predatory Dinosaurs of the World, which was published by Simon & Schuster, back when they did that sort of thing. I'm actually going to re re contact the agent who did that book and see if they would like, since I've gotten on the front page of the Science Times section of the New York Times, if they want to go back to it. But anyway, um, so I did that book, which, by the way, was I like to say this was edited by Alice Mayhew. You have no idea who she was, but she also edited the Woodward and Bernstein books on Watergate, and which I think is pretty cool. So I did that book, and Michael Crichton was writing his the novel Jurassic Park, and he used that as a main source. If you look at his book, he um, acknowledges that my book is important to that. And, you know, I was the only person doing really detailed skeletal restorations at the time. I started that around 1981, I think. Really the first person to do this rigorously because prior to that, artists were basically kind of doing caricatures of dinosaurs. They might kind of sketch a mounted skeleton, which might not be all that accurate, or just kind of wing it. And they often had anatomical impossibilities in these things and so on. So I decided this is not the way to do this. So I was the first one to do that. So when they started the movie, um, I think I wrote them a letter or something like that, but they probably already knew about me anyway. So I did the design work for that, the transverse. Unfortunately, they didn't really rely on me for a lot of the other stuff. The uh, quote-unquote raptors, which is not really appropriate for them, uh, they didn't. They did those somewhat inaccurately. And that, remember that scene near the beginning of the movie where um, the two paleontologists including Laura Dern is really hot. See the rearing Brachiosaurus? Yes, yeah. I had nothing to do with that damn thing. It's horrible looking. It has no, it's completely inaccurate. It's a Gumby dinosaur you could get out of a cereal box. That was, the correct name for that would be Giraffe Titan, actually, which is the name I coined for that particular animal. But um, it was a very graceful, handsome animal, nicely proportioned with slender limbs and that sort of thing. So don't blame me for, the, for that mess. It had nothing to do with it. So um, now, okay, what's the biggest problem with Jurassic Park? That's in that scene, nobody knows what it is, but it's screamingly obvious. What's the total implausibility about that scene? I, that I have no idea. It's huge. It's pretty simple, actually. It would take about 40 years for an animal to grow that big. Really? We actually know the, great, the rate these animals grew up. We can count the ring, bone rings. How did they get that big that fast? It's never explained. It's not possible. If they were in Jurassic Park, 
when you first start, it would all be either small dinosaurs that had grown up within a year or two or juveniles. And nobody ever notes that. Yeah, I guess, I guess that's true. Um, do you think science could get to the point to where we can actually like recreate dinosaurs or a woolly mammoth? Woolly mammoth, um, yeah, dinosaurs, you might do just some retrograde stuff where you take a, um, some sort of a bird and um, some say a chicken, but better probably the paleognathus birds like the tinamous, which are related to ostriches and all that. Those are the most primitive birds. And get something that's kind of like a small theropod, but that was something of a tail sticking out its rear end and teeth, maybe clawed fingers. But it would be a, a facsimile. It wouldn't be an actual species. The woolly mammoth, there's talk about modifying Indian elephants to be more like woolly mammoths, get them fur, fur on them, and do some other things, bigger tusks. That wouldn't be the same species, but it would be a simulation. And then there's talk about using the, the woolly mammoth DNA is pretty good because there's a lot of these specimens out there. And the recent DNA does not, you know, DNA has to split up to, for, for reproduction to occur. So it's a very delicate molecule. So it doesn't last very long. And it has to be under cool conditions, too. Um, for example, you don't get DNA from the tropics very much. But in cold climates, it goes back, I think, about one or two million years. So in principle, maybe you could get a woolly mammoth or in a woolly rhino and that sort of stuff. But um, that would be very limited, just a few things like that you could do that with. So it's more probable that we'll, we would be in like a metaverse Jurassic Park than an actual Jurassic Park then? Yeah. Awesome. Well, hey, where can people find your all your papers, your books, all that good stuff? How can they find you online? Um, I do have a website. It's gspauldino.com. Um, the, the pictures aren't working right now. The guy who helps me out with that is working on those. But that's where you can find all of my um, papers and that sort of thing. A lot of them have links to the, the um, papers. Um, of course, you can get my books on Amazon and that sort of thing. Awesome. Hey, thank you so much for taking the time to do this today. You're more than welcome. I uh, had fun doing it. 